Welcome back to Conversations on Compassion, brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Social and Behavioral Sciences Center for Compassion Studies. I'm Leslie Langbert. I'm so excited that you are listening again or for the first time. My guest today, I'm so honored to be able to have this conversation with him. I'm talking with Lama Rod Owens, who just recently finished his Masters of Divinity at Harvard, and he is also a Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He is also co-author of the really amazing book, I highly recommend it if you haven't yet read it, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. Lamarad has a really incredible gift. Part of what drew me to reach out to him to have this conversation is because his teachings are done in such a personal and intimate way. He really allows his vulnerability to come through along with bringing tremendous humor and a willingness to share his own experiences. I hope that you enjoy this conversation and let us know what you think. Congratulations on receiving your Masters of Divinity at Harvard. I understand Thank you. you just graduated, yeah? I did, yeah, a couple of months ago. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I was just in a retreat with Cheryl Giles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's amazing. So in terms of your path, um, you know, bringing in your scholarship and also the role that you hold as a, a teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, how are those two coming together for you right now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in many ways, I think my, you know, stepping back, looking at my experience in graduate school, um, I think that it really helped me to understand how to use scholarship and research in order to support what I have intuitively felt about the world. Um, through my Dharma practice. Um, I think my, my early Dharma practice was grounded in meditation and in mindfulness before I came into the actual study of Buddhism. And I began to see and understand things about my experience. And I took those kind of revelations and I entered into Dharma practice and really worked with them. You know, some of these, these insights included anger and it included... Um, um, issues around identity included um, things around power and equity. Um, it included also things about physical body and embodiment of experience. And in graduate school, I was able to actually find like um, schools of thought that, and the research um, within those schools that helped me to further articulate um, these experiences that I was having. Um, in my practice. And so I, I bring together the scholarship um, that helps me to further what I know and understand intuitively and experientially for my practice. I love that. It makes 
that makes such sense, you know, bringing the research together with your own intuition. I've heard mm-hmm. you teach before about, and, and again, that, that vulnerability about your own experience, really coming to terms with all of the deep emotions that you experience, the experiences mm-hmm. that are coming at you from the outside. And, mm-hmm. and you've written about in Radical Dharma, the Sangha's purpose to really reflect to us what we're missing, to show us the pieces that we're bypassing. And, you know, let's talk mm-hmm. about that. How do you feel that Sanghas are doing that? Or how are they maybe missing that piece? And mm-hmm. how can they better be vehicles to sort of call each other in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Sanghas, like any other group, um, is a mirror. You know, so Sanghas are mirroring um, the the reality of larger systems um, in the world. So I think sometimes when we enter into sanghas or enter into any spiritual community, we just believe that as soon as we walk into the door of the, of the sit or of the gathering, that all of a sudden all of these social pressures and these social forces are suspended. You know? And so I think we have maintained this kind of false belief that the Sangha just naturally interrupts the forces of, of oppression and violence, hierarchy and power. You know, so we've created this false sense of comfort and security, you know, within our Sanghas. And that has actually, that illusion has actually, um, is at, actually at the root of the kinds of marginalization that many people experience um, who are also marginalized in the outside world in these systems. So it's really difficult for Sanghas to be a catalyst or space for deep transformative healing when they are actually not realizing or coming to the realization that there's so much more work to do in order to disrupt the social forces that are still very active and present within the Sangha, you know. So when Sanghas actually begin to have that kind of understanding and revelation, then that's where the actual healing begins, you know. It's when Sanghas and spiritual communities go, oh, like we're just a microcosm of the larger system in the world, and so we actually have to continue doing um, the practices of undoing uh, oppression, undoing racism, undoing patriarchy, undoing misogyny, and so forth. You know, and then that's where the real transformative healing begins. Until that's able to be dealt with, you will actually, the communities will actually be only spaces of violence for people. Um, and a really perfect, or not perfect, there's no, no such thing as perfect, but I think in like the best of worlds, I think that sanghas, when they're functioning really well, and then when they're really holding each other accountable, um, members of a sangha are reflecting back to one another the work that individuals have to do in a really clear, direct way. Um, That is the profound um, gift of spiritual community, and especially sanghas, that we walk into the space and we're able for our community mates to reflect the work back to us that we still need to do in a way that I hope is kind, compassionate, and loving. 
And that's very different than the reflections that we receive in the outside world, in our workplaces, sometimes in our families, in our friend groups. You know, sometimes we um, get reflected back things in a way that can actually be very harmful for us. Um, so I'm really, really like interested in sanghas who are actually uh, reflecting back very clearly and very direct directly the work each member has to do not giving the work of oppression, marginalization, and hierarchy um, to people who um, are already dealing with that in many other spaces in their lives. You know? Exactly. Um, yeah. Go ahead, please. So we have, to, we have to discern, we have to discern the difference. You know, the work that I'm given, is it the work that I have to do on myself, or is it the unresolved and un- interrogated work of the Sangha as they continue to reproduce um, these kinds of violences um, that are prevalent in our larger societies and communities. So that's the discernment I think that many people, especially um, historically marginalized um, people, have to deal with. You know, is this my work or is this the work of the Sangha to do to unpack uh, um, for themselves? Exactly, this tendency to kind of ask those who are marginalized, well, what can we do? What should we do differently? Which is not, mm -hmm. that's not the work. Um, mm -hmm. But I will ask, because I'm sure that some people that are listening, you know, they're like, wow, I'm not quite sure if my Sangha is, mm -hmm. you know, operating in a space of being in the shadow of this yeah. or if we're doing the work. Do you feel comfortable to kind of give a couple of examples and exactly. in both cases? Yeah. So if you are a white practitioner in a sangha and everyone else is white, then that's a sign. <laughs> <laughs> that's any space that is um, all white is a dangerous and violent space for those who are not white, who are of color. You know, so if you are a member of a sangha like that with no diversity, then you also have to accept the reality that you're in a violent sangha, a cyclically violent sangha um, for marginalized people. You know, so if you're someone who's realizing that, then you also have the responsibility to intervene um, into the community and say, listen, I think we have work to do. You know, everyone looks the same. Everyone comes from the same class. Everyone's equally educated, you know. So if you go through these lists and we're saying that, oh, everyone's like the same across the board, then you're not actually experiencing inclusivity. You're experiencing exclusivity. You're excluding anyone who isn't like you, you know. So first and foremost, having that realization and 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 asking in the community, okay, what do we actually need to do? You know, um, I hear so many stories, and I, too, have had many experiences of being marginalized um, in sanghas, you know, and there's, you know, certain sanghas where there may be a few people um, that represent marginalized communities, and I think it's really important to start communicating with those groups you know, with those folks and sanghas and just asking, what is your experience here? You know, and really actually position yourself in a way that you will actually hear that um, and take responsibility 
for that feedback. Um, that's incredibly important. Um, we have to decenter dominant paradigms within science. So dominant paradigm meaning we have to decenter um, whiteness. We have to decenter patriarchy. We have to decenter elitism. We have to decenter intellectualism. You know, you have to decenter these dominant ways of thinking in the sangha in order to create room for other ways of being and other ways of occupying identity. That's difficult if you occupy these dominant identities and your identity and your paradigm is centered. To decenter means that you will experience um, great discomfort. To experience great discomfort is the primary sign that you're doing something right. Um, but it's incredibly hard to decenter something that's deeply, deeply comfortable and seems very right and natural. You know, so that is the the difficulty of being stationed within a dominant identity or a dominant paradigm within a, a system or within a community is that you just have this feeling that what you're experiencing is just natural and you don't understand why people who are different have different experiences than you. You know, so you, we have to work in collaboration with others who are having different experiences and begin to privilege their feedback and their experience um, of these environments. You know, and so often, and this is the case for many, many groups, is that they try to begin this work and they don't go far enough, you know? So it doesn't mean that a sangha or a group or a community, you know, in order to address inclusivity, you should start hiring people of color or, you know, you know, putting, you know, um, queer people or um, poor people in power. That's actually not inclusivity. It's more along the lines of diversity. And we understand that diversity has a lot of drawbacks. There's a lot of obstacles. Um, um, in terms of diversity. Diversity just means that, oh, there are just like different people here. Inclusivity means that like dominant paradigms have been decentered to make room for different ways of being and thinking within a space. And there is an ultra sensitivity to the ways in which one paradigm or one way of thinking begins to, to dominate a space. You know? So, you know, authorizing marginalized people within the Sangha is definitely a good start, but you also have to empower um, the narratives and the experiences of marginalized people to actually have a really significant influence in how the Sangha is informed and how the, 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 the Sangha functions, basically. Until that happens, then you're not really serious about the work of inclusivity. And you're right about the challenge of that it's a it's it feels to me like it it isn't just the challenge of the system although the mm -hmm. that's there are all of these pieces that you're speaking to and the way that I've heard you talk about it before is the sense that to walk into the space that you feel that you have to leave some part of yourself outside of the door mm -hmm. and 
that to me was such a a powerful um, teaching. And and since just in the few weeks that I heard you say that when I've been in um, Dharma spaces for retreats or other events, I've been so much more aware of even Mm -hmm. the subtleties of you know, how one is expected to conduct themselves, you know, hold your physical body in a certain way, don't be too loud, Um, you know, really small things like that, um, that, of course, encompass, you know, larger um, aspects of identity that, that um, there's a sort of invisible structure that, that Mm -hmm. communicates an unwelcomeness. Mm -hmm. Um, So that work, um, the uh, the discomfort, the uncomfortableness in the work, to me, speaks to that really deep personal work, that personal transformation, um, the work of healing that mm-hmm. needs to be done um, mm-hmm. for everyone. And mm-hmm. can you speak a little bit about that, about that that role in? Outside of sanghas, too, just sort of, you know, just, I think our own just human, our own human work to begin to transform and dismantle these mm-hmm. systems of oppression everywhere that mm-hmm. they exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the ways that we begin to do that is by allowing feedback. So it's entering into a dynamic relationship with not just ourselves, but those around us, um, a dynamic relationship with the systems that we're a part of in order to begin to see how we function within interactions and to understand how uh, sometimes we function in a way that is about um, exerting control and power over others or dominating others. We have to, like, become a way... begin to become sensitive to that, you know, and we do that through awareness, but also through our own study, you know, our reading. Um, We do that through being in conversation with those who are doing the work and with those who are different than us. You know, we begin to have this dialogue across, across difference and that dialogue actually begins to reflect back um, the kinds of work that we haven't been doing that we have to start doing. That is the healing piece. You know, we talk about healing as a, re- a recognition of wholeness. You know, um, when we buy into false social structures and false hierarchies, then we're actually practicing a kind of fragmentation. You know, um, when we really, really super invest in these identities that are at the end of the day quite illusionary, um, then we're we're fragmenting ourselves, you know. And there are really beautiful teachings within Buddhism that help us to frame this in a really um, important way. And one of the ways I I frame this is through the study of the Heart Sutra, and the Heart Sutra is a really important sutra within um, early Buddhism. Um, it was a teacher, uh, a teaching delivered by the Buddha, um, and the Heart Sutra basically, at its heart, um, states that um, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, 
you know, so essentially that means that what arises definitely arises, but it's also free of any realness at the same time. So everything's like an illusion, but that illusion is real, but ultimately it isn't, you know? I like to use that when I talk about race. For instance, I, in a relative sense, I am a black man, but being a black man is a socially constructed condition. It's a socially constructed identity. What is being black? What is being a man? Ultimately, there's no such thing as emptiness. But I just can't skip to the ultimate meaning because relatively, my gender and my race mean something really significant to people who actually are not uh, invested in trying to have dual realizations of the nature of reality. You know, so it actually doesn't work for me to roll out into the streets and to go up, you know, to like a cop or like um, a Klansman and say, listen, I'm not really black, so you shouldn't hate me. That actually just doesn't work. Um, so the wisdom that arises out of our work with the Heart Sutra is basically that, yes, I am manifesting one way relatively, but ultimately, I'm something different. So I hold both of these together. They're like the two sides of one coin, or like I hold them in two different hands. I put both of those together, and when I put both of these truths together, I say, I am black, but I'm not black. And so I have to stay right in the middle of that contemplation and sit with this really uncomfortable positionality of being both and not um, at the same time. And I think that this, this kind of practice and contemplation begins to disrupt our fixation on identity. You know? And it actually gives us lots of space in order to understand how fixation on identity and relative manifestations actually really are part of the ways in which we suffer. And they're also part of the ways in which we create suffering for others through biases, prejudice, discrimination, through our false belief that um, this relative manifest manifestation actually means something, ultimately, because it doesn't. You know? So this is how I actually move through the world. Yes, I'm invested in identity, but also I understand the reality of identity at the same time. You know, and that's helped me to have this incredible kind of spaciousness um, to practice compassion and love, not just for myself, but for so many people around me, especially for the people who I deem as being the center or at the, the root of how I suffer um, on a social level. You know, so that's my work of healing, you know, is understanding the truth of reality and understanding the truth of the ultimate together in one experience. Claiming that that wholeness. Mm -hmm. We have such a, a long, deep, deep history in this country of these structures that require all of us in some way and in, in some of us in many more ways and in much more traumatic ways than others to sort of cut off or leave behind 
uh, parts of who we are, mm -hmm. um, where we've come from, mm -hmm. um, you know, language, homelands, um, mm -hmm. all of that. And to me, that's part of that disconnection from the wholeness that you're talking about and what maintains this illusion, right, that mm -hmm. keeps these structures in place. One of the things that I've that I've heard you give teachings on that I feel is so powerful is this this ancestral practice mm -hmm. of being able to you know sort of bring ourselves all together again. And I think and please you know uh, call me in if this is not a correct understanding. And I want you to talk about it more. But for me, it facilitates not only just a um, a deeper uh, personal connection to the things that I might not want to accept or, or look at. It's that invitation of wholeness, not just the things that mm -hmm. I like, but it's also facilitating a much deeper um, empathy and compassion and space to bring in wholeness of everyone around me, too. You are mm -hmm. part of my wholeness. You right. out here are part of my wholeness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak to ancestral practice a little bit? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think ancestral practice works on a couple of different levels, and we can understand it in several ways. Um, my basic understanding of ancestral practice is kind of this literal reconnecting to those within my um, family line, my lineage that have come before me, um, people that are beings rather that, um, I have been disconnected from my whole life, but who actually, uh, have contributed, contributed significant, um, parts of who I am, you know? So I am, another way of saying that is I am, a psalm of all those who've come before me in this physical body. And to realize that and to summon those beings back um, is actually to enliven and to awaken my embodiment. You know, um, as on a relative level, as someone who is descended from African slaves, it was for me a way to reconnect to this history and a lineage that I felt to be too violent and too traumatic for me. Um, and because of the ways in which I've been trained in Dharma, and especially in meditation, uh, loving kindness practice being the root of that, um, I'm able to work with returning back to these places in my ancestry um, to, to offer loving kindness, compassion, love, um, to those in my ancestry who experience a lot of violence, you know, um, because that violence has been passed from generation to, to generation and it's positive within my body. You know, so to offer that loving kindness back is to release myself from that, that transhistorical trauma. Um, I also understand ancestry practice as also preparing the the causes and condition for my life, for my progeny con to continue into the future. Um, we are both uh, 
looking back at our ancestry and we're also looking forward because we are ourselves in the process of becoming ancestors as well. And so my question is how do I use my practice to disrupt what I have inherited from my lineage and how do I intentionally um, pass on um, different experiences, different qualities um, that are more about being liberated from suffering than fixating on suffering. That's my role as an ancestor in training is to minimize the violence that I pass on to the next generation. We can also understand ancestor practice as a way for us to relate to intersectionality. Um, and so intersectionality was the work of Kimberly Crenshaw, um, and she developed this, this way of thinking about identity in order for us to start thinking about oppression and how identities come together to create um, different ways uh, different modes of oppression for different people. Um, and that's been such an important idea for me in my work over the past few years. And ancestor practice um, in relation to intersectionality is about inviting all of my various identity locations into community, into awareness, um, and to hold space. And when I hold space, I also hold space for the, the causes and conditions that have informed these identities to show up in socially valued ways or socially invalid ways or devalued ways. Um, Black Lives Matter is, I think, a really important and beautiful movement in order for those of us um, of African descent to reclaim identities that have been historically uh, devalued. And that primary identity is one of blackness. Um, and I think also that Black Lives Matter helps us to, to understand that um, we are in solidarity with so many other marginalized groups who have also been historically othered as well. And so the ethic, one of the ethics of Black Lives Matter is to call into union all of our desperate identity locations and to bring them back into community um, in a way that's loving and kind. And then to, 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 to sit within that loving kindness in order to subvert the ways in which the system perpetuates the violence of um, devaluing um, of other lives, you know, including the lives of differently abled and disabled um, groups and people, you know. Um, so that's really the work of ancestor practice, you know, it's this basic recognition that I am the result of choices that have been made before my birth, and I can start holding space for that in order to start making different choices and how those after me will be informed. To me, that is one of the most powerful practices that I've been introduced to. 
-hmm. the gravity, the potential in recognizing that, that we are at the, at the intersection of everything that we're carrying, everything that's come before and what we can transform it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And coming to that, that again, you know, there's the tendency, I think when, when many of us want to move into activist roles or um, many of us want to be allies, there's a sense of, you know, there's not time to do my own work. I have to jump in and, mm-hmm. and help or take action. But what I'm hearing in this is just how critical they, they both, they're, they're inextricable in a way if we're doing it in a way that's going to be sustainable, that's going to truly be transformative. Both have to happen. We have to recognize how this lives in our own bodies before Mm -hmm. we can take action to um, assist, support, or dismantle the systems. There's a question that you, put out there, I think, toward the end of Radical Dharma. And I think it's a really powerful question. Mm-hmm. Can love and rage exist together? Mm-hmm. What, what do you want to say about that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that they can exist together. Um, I think that love becomes the container in which our rage can be held. Um, I think when rage overwhelms love, then that is, that's violence. But when love completely engulfs our rage, then I think that's the point of where creativity and reconciliation begin. Um, And so they definitely hold the space they can hold space together, but one inside the other. You know, so my experience has never been that there's an equal share of space, but it's always been for me either one engulfs the other. And my work has been for for me to to train and love um, embracing rage. You know, and my rage, and not and to embrace rage. In a way, not to like extinguish it, not to get rid of it, not to avoid it, but simply to take care of it. And I think rage, I think anger is very important for us. Um, I think all of our emotions are very important. Um, I think it is our reactivity to our emotional reality that um, is the problematic piece for us. For us, but inflictive emotion themselves inherently are not our issue. Um, so the rage and the anger really help to point to the ways in which we've been deeply hurt. And it, that rage invites us to go to that place of deep hurt and to love that, that wound. You know, so we waste our anger when we get distracted by it. You know, so anger is just like the smoke, but we want to get to the fire. The fire is the hurt, is the woundedness. And love is the the strategy that we use to get to the woundedness in a way that's kind and direct, caring, um, and and open, and curious, and all of that. 
What tools have you found have been helpful for you on your journey? Mm -hmm. When the when the rage, when the anger is surfacing, I know you've been really mm. candid um, in the book and and in your in your teachings about really grappling with and and moving through feelings of inadequacy in some way, and I think. Many, many of us, I know I can identify with that. That's a sort of a yeah. theme that comes up for me frequently. And yeah. it can be really, really difficult to connect with feelings of self-love. It feels like the anger, you know, can is much more, um, much more easily found. And anger can uh -huh. be either like internal or it can be, you know, anger toward those who would, you know, reinforce those feelings of mm -hmm. inadequacy. Um, mm -hmm. So, if someone's listening and they're and they're wondering, you know, well, how how do I even begin that? How do I create the container of love to hold all of my rage? Where is that love found? What mm -hmm. what's a good a good kind of place to start? Kind of that investigation. Mm -hmm. I think first and foremost, we have to. Uh, look at the ways in which we're always trying to distance ourselves from anger and the ways in which anger somehow inherently this judgment on our quality and our goodness. So we have to reverse that relationship to anger to say that, oh, this anger is just a natural part of my experience. This is just what happens. This is what mind does. It has these experiences. It experiences emotions. This is a valid, real emotion, you know? And once I begin to relate to my anger like that, then I see it as a natural part of who I am. It's not a judgment. It's just an emotion, you know? I think too often we equate anger with being good or with our inability to be good. And virtuous, I think that's a mechanism that um, oppresses um, and controls people. You know, if you can get someone to kind of uh, repress their anger, then you can really control them. You know, so anger is this this really intense experience that actually wakes us up and says, "Oh, something's really wrong." Like, I'm really hurt. Why am I hurt? What's going on in this environment? It jolts us. It's a violent jolt. You know? If we're not connected to anger in a way that we're paying attention to it, or if we're not seeing anger as a natural manifestation of our minds, then we don't get that. You know? So for me, in coming to terms with my own anger, it was really much, it was very much saying that, like, this is just natural. You know, and that my anger is telling me something else. And my experience of anger has nothing to do with my inherent goodness. You know, and so many of us are controlled by this desire to obtain the state of goodness or the perceived state of goodness as validated by others around us. We want to be good boys and good girls and good, you know, people, you know, that's. We want to go for like that validation, but we actually have to disrupt 
this idea of goodness because the goodness that we've been conditioned with is a kind of goodness that simply accepts the status quo and it doesn't challenge and it's a kind of goodness that maintains the comfort um, of those around us and it maintains the stability of oppression and violent systems you know so you get rid of this idea of trying to be good and move into this place of asking yourself what does it mean to be virtuous what does it live to mean what is it what does it mean to live in a way that i'm practicing compassion for myself and others because authentic compassion will take us into places and it will influence us to do things that will create a lot of disharmony it will create a lot of disruption but if we're really practicing compassion in terms of deeply empathizing with our own suffering and the suffering of those around us, then we're compelled to move into disrupting the causes and conditions that perpetuate suffering for all people. You know, and that means that we have to do things that are radical. We have to do things that directly confront the systems that we've been told our whole lives are natural and unmovable, you know, are unchallengeable. You know, and so get rid of this idea of good and move more into like, what does it mean to be a person of virtue? You know, practicing compassion deeply is a practice of virtue. It's a practice of integrity um, for all of us. And anger, embracing anger, holding anger is part of how we deepen our virtue. You know, that virtue is basically, you know, how do we do good things in the world because we see that um, this is how we live together in community and this is how we um, minimalize um, the reality of violence and suffering for ourselves and others. When we keep doing that over and over again, we begin to become virtuous people, people who are naturally involved in the disruption of violence around us. Uh, and we disrupt violence, hopefully, by any means necessary. Yes. That willingness to, it's its going to get messy. It's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that's where, right now, in terms of, like, looking at our political situation and looking at our current social movements, there's this real tension that where people are, really resisting getting messy. You know, we, we're desperately trying to maintain institutions and the orderliness of institutions, when in fact the institutions often lie at the heart of how these systems of oppression maintain themselves. You know, so we have to disrupt the institution often to disrupt the system itself. Absolutely, it's remarkable to me uh, the deeper that I've, I'm going in my own exploration mm -hmm. around how we're caught in these systems that operate within organizations that we are a part of. Um, I was in a retreat recently, and one of our activities was around consider an organization um, that you may have worked for um, that contributes or upholds these systems of oppression. And I will tell you that, so I'm a social worker by profession. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so I've, I've worked for many years in the nonprofit sector and have held um, roles in uh, funding organizations. Mm-hmm. And in moving through the catalog of, of all of the uh, organizations that I've been employed with, I couldn't identify one that was not mm-hmm. upholding these systems. And mm-hmm. so this uh, that awareness was... Um, many things uh, that, you know, it was, it was horrifying, painful, um, powerful in terms of, you know, showing me what, as you had said earlier, you know, there's, there's just so many aspects that we just sort of consider as normal ways of being that we don't even recognize I don't remember who wrote this, but it was such a beautiful analogy. You know, fish don't see the water they swim in. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about mm-hmm. systems of, of, you know, white dominance and systems of mm-hmm. oppression. Um, Lamarad, tell me what sustains you. You're such a strong activist, such a strong teacher, and I just... In every interaction I've had with you, just such a warm and loving presence. What sustains mm-hmm. you? Really the work of self-love. You know, and self-love was something I I definitely believed in my whole life. I just never knew how to do it. And then I started practicing meditation and getting into Buddhism. And I also started hanging around people who practice really radical forms of self-love. And it was completely sustainable. And those people became my teachers. You know? And so much of that practice is disrupting all the negative messages that we're receiving around us. You know? And disrupting that... And I replace that with these basic teachings within Buddhism that actually begin to help me to understand that, like, inherently I am a Buddha. You know, that I am naturally awakened, but it's because of this layer of ignorance that I get lost and confused. And this belief and the self-existing self of the ego. Um, so I started investing a lot of faith in this belief that I was actually woke and um, a Buddha and I carry that confidence into the world and my meditation practice helps to inform um, ways of like validating that reality for me um, over and over again you know so connecting to the reality of things connecting to the truth of things actually investing deeply in this reality and manifestation of wisdom itself. Wisdom being clear seeing, you know, understanding the clarity of things, connecting to the truth of how things really are. You know, that sustains me, you know? So if I'm called a name or I'm often on social media dealing with people, you know, um, who are very critical, who are very much, you know, full of their own suffering, I'm able to just be in these spaces and to be like, oh, like this person is just suffering now. It's not about me. It's never about us. You know, when we try to hurt other people, it's about our own deep insecurity and our own deep pain 
that we're blaming others for. So that's actually really about our own insufficiencies. So when I'm in interactions like that, then I'm like, oh, this is impersonal. Like you actually don't know who I am because you don't know who you are. If you knew who you were, then you would see me clearly. You know, so I understand that like this is this basic ignorance that's permeating many interactions. And so I just understand that. I get that. I have this deeply felt uh, experience and proof that this is the reality because I've seen it in I've seen it for myself that when I didn't have a sense of who I was beneath the, these layers of identity, then I acted in, a, in certain ways to hurt people because of my own confusion and my own hurt. You know, and that's what it is, but that takes years. So I've, I've had this incredible privilege of like spending years and years and years like doing this practice seriously. And, you know, three and a half of those years being away in retreats. You know, five of those years living in a monastery, practicing and working. So, like, it's, it's, I, I've had this privilege, you know, but in a way it wasn't a privilege. It was just simply a choice. I just made a choice, you know, to take practice seriously. And so many people don't. Many, even, you know, really serious practitioners actually don't take the practice of self awakening seriously, you know. Uh, until you start taking it seriously, until you start risking something, until you start wanting to get messy, you won't actually ever see the change that you really need to see in order to be free. Yeah, I mean, that's it takes a great deal of courage to step into the practice, your practice, in the way that you've described with such commitment. Well, it's not... It's, it's part of it is courage, but it's also being sick and tired of being sick and tired. As Fannie Lou Hamer um, once famously said, you just, you just have to be tired of the, everything. You just have to be tired of the games, of the violence, of the manipulation. You have to be tired of all the ways in which you're like circling yourself, you know, and you just come to this place where you're like, you know what, I either have to deal with myself or I'll continue to be in this immense kind of suffering for the rest of my life up until the day that I die. And I didn't want to die miserable. And that was it. It was like, after that, you don't even need courage. You know, you're just like, I'm just tired. I see it. I get it. What's next? Where do I, where do I sign up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you? I know you're you're with your co-authors of Radical Dharma. You guys are doing amazing webinars. You've started doing retreats. Um, mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. next? Mm -hmm. um, for us, you know, definitely planning more events, more retreats. Um, we want to convene people more often. We want to get a sense of the organizing that's happening in Radical Dharma. We want to start really identifying the movement of radical dharma and the tradition that's springing and, and coming forth um, in this country and in other countries as well, you know. Um, so next year, um, I will be, you know, travel, traveling in Europe and in the UK, um, teaching radical dharma and just getting a sense of how people are receiving the book in other countries um, and the movements. 
um, personally, you know, my own personal work, um, just continuing to um, kind of, you know, develop my own teachings um, to really invest in what radical Dharma looks like as a pedagogy um, in terms of Dharma teaching. Um, I'm really interested in having more conversations between liberation theology and radical Dharma um, and really engaging in a public discourse, but also a public ministry of radical Dharma or socially engaged Buddhism, you know, that is not about centering uh, class or whiteness, but it's about um, really centering the experiences of marginalized people and really getting to the root, using Dharma to get to the root of disrupting um, systems of violence. And that's actually what socially engaged Buddhism isn't doing. You know, so radical Dharma isn't a socially engaged Buddhism, you know, radical Dharma is actually a new separate tradition that has been inspired by socially engaged Buddhism, but it's actually about taking Dharma into the roots of violence and not just, you know, practicing compassion and love and helping people and doing acts of service. It's about actually disrupting the roots of these institutions and systems that perpetuate violence and inequity. Um, so really investing in trying to figure out what that looks like publicly. Um, I'm continuing to do my own writing. Um, and I, you know, I have a lot of ideas that I'm working on, um, bringing forth in, in next year. Um, so, and so that's, you know, pretty much what I'm up to. It's amazing. I'm so excited and I can't wait to bring you to Tucson, um, as part of that work. Uh, we have a, a big community here that's that's really excited um, about the work that you're doing. Awesome. Well, Marad, thank you so so much for mm -hmm. this conversation. I deeply appreciate every opportunity that I've had to to hear you speak. Um, it's such a joy to be in dialogue with you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Well, you've made it through to the end, friends. Thank you so much for listening. Lama Rod has offered a great deal to think about, to work with, to take action on. Wouldn't you agree? Those of you that are listening that are part of a Dharma community in particular, I really hope that much of what he shared, that this finds some, some resonance, that this finds a spark for compassionate action in your communities. I know that much of what he shared inspires me and sparks me to take action in the organizations and communities that I live in and that I am affected by. As always, really appreciate your tuning in. And for more information about the Center for Compassion Studies, please visit our website at CompassionCenter.Arizona. 
lamarod.edu. For more information about Lama Rod Owens, visit his website at lamarod.com. This has been another episode of the University of Arizona Center for Compassion Studies Conversations on Compassion. This has been produced by Gary Forger. Our sound engineer is Gary Darnell. Music produced by Gary Darnell and the incredible team at the University of Arizona Office of Instruction and Assessment. This is Leslie Langbert with the Center for Compassion Studies. Thanks for listening.